Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So our reading this morning continues in Nehemiah, um, chapter 13, verses 4 to the end of the chapter. And if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 498. So Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem, Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing this, all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day People from Tyre, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things, so that our God brought all this calamity on us and this city? 
Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for, the con for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Richard, and uh, thank you for everyone who has read a portion of Nehemiah this past, well, since seven, eight months, I think it is, we've read three chunks of four weeks apiece, so thank you all. Um, and let me just begin by adding my welcome to that of Ben's. Uh, I'm ever conscious that there are new folks amongst us, and we'd love to get to know you, so please don't dash off at the end. Please do introduce yourselves. Well, before we look into God's word, would you join me for a prayer? Father, your word is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, 
and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Would you please show us what is true of our lives, what normally remains hidden from our gaze, and encourage us, fuel us for endurance, and flood us with hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, are you uh, someone who likes a movie that has a happy ending? Or do you prefer a sort of a bit of gritty realism? There is a reason that Disney ends all its movies the way that they do. It offers a world where dreams really do come true, where the baddies get punished and the goodies do prevail. And everyone lives happily ever after. Or do you find the falseness of that rather sickening? Do you instead enjoy a movie where you know, even though it looks like it's going well, it's all going to turn on its head in a sinister twist in the end, leaving you with a cynical outlook on the evilness of this world and the hopelessness of humanity? So which kind of story is Nehemiah? We come this morning to our last sermon in this, uh, this Nehemiah sermon series. And before we look at this passage, I would simply like to say, if I may say this, if it was down to me, I would have ended this story at the end of chapter 12. You see there, don't you? The wall is complete. The temple is done. The reforms are enacted. Everyone is celebrating. It's great. And then you get to chapter 13, and the wheels fall off, and it's a mess. And so we're left asking the question, why does Nehemiah include in his memoir chapter 13? It wouldn't it have been so much easier just to encourage, uh, uh, to finish on a high note at the end of chapter 12? Why does he include this chapter? It's not a happy ending. But it's not a cynical ending either. It's instead a story that doesn't necessarily finish well, but it finishes with hope. It's a hopeful ending. It delivers hope when all hope seems lost. One commentator writing about hope on this passage says, when a reader sees hope in a story, that hope sends thrills through the reader's spine because hope gives us joy that propels us through even the darkest moments of our lives. And if I may just add, the answer, I believe, to why chapter 13 is included is at least hinted in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, where Paul writes, everything that is written in the past, and that includes Nehemiah chapter 13, everything that was written in the past was written to teachers so that through the endurance taught in scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. See, Nehemiah chapter 13 is about endurance, encouragement, and hope. Anybody need any of that here this morning? No, I certainly do. So I'd like to unpack these uh, verses under three headings. First, the sincere commitment. Second, the serious failure. And third, the secure promise. So let's have a look first at the sincere commitment. 
And the commitment goes back to chapter 10, which is a high point of the book of Nehemiah. The temple is complete. The wall is secure. The gates have been built. The reforms have swept through God's people. They're celebrating. Everyone, uh, everything finishes so well. And Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Things are good. And then in chapter 9, they uh, reminded themselves in prayer of God's faithfulness to a stumbling people. And in the light of God's goodness to them, that He kept delivering them throughout their history from the mess that they got themselves into, uh, the people then in response made a set of commitments. End of chapter 9, verse 38, there's an agreement, a covenant that they enter into. Now, I'm not going to detail all of them, but they essentially cover commitments that assure one another that their lives, uh, that they'll live lives that are distinct from the surrounding nations, that they would offer complete obedience to the Word of God, uh, that they would observe and do all that was written here in Scripture. They promised that they would, uh, uh, that the Sabbath day would be kept holy. They promised that they would bring in the first fruits of the land and pay the tithe and the temple tax. They promised that they would not neglect the house of their God. Nine times, if you remember, at the end of chapter 10, they repeated the phrase, the house of our God, the house of our God. This will be our highest priority. That's the commitment. You know, it's, it's very easy, isn't it, for us uh, to forget that Nehemiah was, in fact, a servant of the Persian king Artaxerxes. You see, that's easy to forget amidst all of what we've been reading in these past weeks, that he was, in fact, a Persian civil servant. Remember, he'd been commissioned to, to come and to engage in this building work and reform in Jerusalem by a pagan king. But now, he must return. And as we come to look more closely at chapter 13, 12 years had passed. And we read in verse 6 and verse 7, Nehemiah was back. He'd gone away, and a lot had happened in his absence. It was now verse 6, the 32nd year of the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. Now, incidentally, the Babylonian empire had been conquered by the Persians, and Artaxerxes would be then considered the king of Babylon as well as the king of Persia. And during Nehemiah's absence, decline set in, unbelievable decline. When you think again of what's happened in this city, the revival, the rending of the heavens, the, the fact that God had come down amongst them, the reformation that's taken place, the delight in the worship of God. The six-hour-long services of reading and explaining the Word of God, entering into a, a personal covenant, reforming their lives and their marriages, promising to live out and out for God no matter what. You know, when you, when you think of all that, and really, in less than a decade, it has all gone up in flames. It is a sobering warning that any church is only ever a generation away from spiritual decline. So let's, let's have a look then at what Nehemiah finds on his 
return. We've seen the sincere commitment. Let's look second at the serious failure to keep those commitments. And it's while Nehemiah is gone that this failure occurs, and you discover that the failure hits every area of their personal and religious lives. Every one of those commitments that they vowed to keep in chapter 10, they fail in chapter 13. So let's see firstly then, uh, Nehemiah, when he returns, he finds compromise in God's house. Now this should not come as a surprise to us, if you remember. And maybe you could do me the kindness of just looking back, if you would, to chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Do you remember this? Do you remember how all the gates in the city walls had been built and they'd been hung in the entrances of, of, the, of the city walls and, and they, were, they were locked? You see that there in verse 3 and, and verse 6, for example, the bolts and bars of all the gates were put in place. That is, except one gate, one door. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. The priests only set the doors in place. And the implication is that they left the door unlocked. They left it open for someone to come in. It was an early hint from Nehemiah in his memoirs that trouble lay ahead. And so the failure begins when Nehemiah got back and he discovered that a man by the name of Tobiah has been let in by the priests and he's made his way into the holy place, a place set aside for the worship of God, chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. And you'll remember from the, the story that we've been looking at together that Sambalat and Tobiah, they were bitter enemies of the Israelites and had tried to undermine throughout the, the building of these walls. But it's particularly poignant, if I may suggest, to read this when only a verse or two earlier we read that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. You see, the Israelites have let Tobiah into the center of their lives. He's actually living in a sacred room within the temple courts, a storeroom that was set apart for the grain, oil, and incense used by the Levites in their purification and ritual ceremonies. See, God's people had allowed an enemy of God's people to make his way into a place that was meant to be kept holy and sacred for God. You know, I can't help but find the analogy with our own lives. See, our body is God's temple and he has claimed ownership of it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are told that we are no longer our own. We have been purchased with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, your temple. What have we allowed in? What enemies, enemies have we allowed to take up residence in the place that ought to have been kept holy for the Lord? They'd violated the house of God. And we read in verse 8, Nehemiah was greatly displeased. Now I think we might agree that that is a mild understatement. See his reaction. He arrives, he's furious, isn't he? It's a hissy fit. He threw the belongings of Tobiah out of the room. He's angry. 
really angry. And then he fumigates the room and he returns the oil and the grain and the incense to their proper place. And as you're, as you're reading this, what historical events brings to mind? It's easy, isn't it, to compare here the, the storeroom clearing to the righteous indignation of our Lord when he cleared the temple of the tax collectors. See, the story here reveals clearly the way evil works. It invades us quietly. Before we are aware of it, we have compromised ourselves and gone along with standards widely accepted by the world around. And what this story depicts is the times when we must take a strong stand against evil in ourselves. We must be prepared to, to take drastic action, take often painful action, to clear up the things that are wrong with our own personal affairs. And the second thing Nehemiah discovers is that giving has been neglected. You see that there in verse 10. And the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. So verse 11, I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And we see there, verse 12, the people responded in faith by bringing the tithes of the field into the storehouse. Praise God. And third thing Nehemiah discovers is the desecration of the Sabbath, verses 15 to 22. And again, he immediately takes steps to, to rectify this by stationing some of his men at the city gates so merchants could not enter and do business on the Sabbath, threatening to arrest them if they tried. And fourthly and finally, he finds uh, some of the people marrying Ammonites and Moabites, verse 22. Now, this is really important. I, I stress this uh, last week, and let me do it again. This is not about uh, any racial or cultural discrimination. It's not about race, but about purity of worship, about ensuring that these idolaters, these idol worshippers, uh, these neighbors who are involved in child sacrifice are not part of the worship and the people of God. And we remember, didn't we, how the people of God welcomed Ruth, the Moabite, who, who put her faith in the God of the Israelites. And it was her testimony to her mother-in-law, your people are my God and your God is my God. Your people are my people, sorry, and your God is my God. Now, I imagine when Richard was reading that portion of Scripture that you took a, almost like a, a gasp of air when you read what Nehemiah did. I think it's an important moment, actually, that we just pause here. You see, the final thing of the people marrying Ammonites and, and the Moabites, we find particularly upsets Nehemiah. And quite honestly, it's hard, isn't it, to justify his actions there in verse 25. It's rather uncomfortable to think of Nehemiah as a man who beats someone up in his anger. You know, there clearly is a place to be angry over sin. As we know from Jesus and the way that he cleared those temple forecourts. But here it seems that the sinful humanity of Nehemiah spills over as his anger gets the better of him. It's turned from righteous indignation over sin to behavior that is not acceptable. His sinful nature gets the better of him. And interestingly, when faced with a similar situation, Ezra, back in Ezra chapter 9, he pulled out his own hair. Here, Nehemiah pulled out the hair of those he assaulted. You know, let's be honest. There is a tension here for us this morning. 
On the one hand, we have seen Nehemiah, this great man of prayer, a godly leader who served and loved the people of Israel, a man who we respect and would want to follow. But then we see in these verses that he has a temper and potential bullying instincts. You know, is this just another flawed leader? Is that the reality? A leader that cannot be trusted? Well, yes and no. It's a reminder that he is a sinner saved by grace. And any good that he has done was only through and with the help of God and his Spirit. It's also a reminder that this story of Nehemiah actually was never about Nehemiah. It's about a faithful God to a faltering, stumbling people. And here we have Nehemiah stumbling and faltering. But what we can hold on to is that Nehemiah is a man who has been quick throughout this story to acknowledge his sin again and again. It's also a reminder that while Nehemiah was sent to rescue the people of God, he was a flawed individual pointing to the need for the ultimate rescuer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who we can trust unconditionally, the only true shepherd, the only leader to truly lead and guide us. So we've seen then the sincere commitment and the serious favor, failure. Let's notice finally the secure promise. Great intentions, absolute failure, and then silence for 400 years. That's what we've got here. You understand, of course, Nehemiah, while it's before the Psalms in your Bible chronologically, it's the end of the story before that intertestamental period. Malachi, which appears last in the Old Testament, was a contemporary of Nehemiah's, and Malachi probably wrote his prophecy during the time that Nehemiah was back in Susa for 12 years because he writes about the people's failure to bring in the tithe. But here we are with all that failure, and I'm left wondering if the Apostle Paul lived in that day, if he might not have quoted Romans chapter 7 to them. You know, that passage that certainly rings in my head so often because it describes so much of my life. You know, the good that I want to do, I don't end up doing that. Yep. No, the evil I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. And then Romans chapter 7, verse, uh, verse 24. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? See, only for Nehemiah, it would have stopped there, right? Who will rescue me? And for 400 years, the question rang out, who will rescue us? Who will rescue us? So what does, the, what does Nehemiah leave with the people of God that rings in their ears for the next 400 years? What's the promise? What gives them endurance and encouragement and hope? as they keep seeing their failure over and over again, their ongoing inability to walk with God and please God, the way deep down they say that they want to please God. 
Well, that comes by way of a promise, which doesn't really show up as a promise. Where you see it is in Nehemiah's prayer. Let me explain. So three times, Nehemiah prays the same thing. You'll have seen that. And it's really his last utterance in chapter 13. Remember me, he prays there in verse 14, verse 22, and verse 31. And his final words, remember me with favor, my God. Remember me, remember me, remember me. And now of the 11 chapters that Nehemiah prays in this book, uh, so 11 prayers that Nehemiah prays in this book, in, including chapter 9, which of course is the longest prayer in the Bible, out of the 11 prayers, six of them have these words, remember, remember me, remember them, God remember. So now what does, that even, what does that even mean? Does it mean that God tends to forget, that he has lapses in memory? Does it mean that, uh, that God was like me during my years as a, as a student? You know, I remember those years well whenever I came to the exam, and maybe some of you are uh, approaching this right now, and as you get there, you're just praying, Lord, you know, help me to remember the things that I've studied. You know, I prayed that because I was forgetful. I would always forget so much of the things that I'd read and, and studied. God, you know, please help me to remember is God that way? Does he struggle to remember? Does he struggle to remember who we are and what our needs are? What is Nehemiah asking when he prays? God, remember me. It's actually a prayer that you find throughout the Old Testament 235 times. And what you discover is every time the biblical writers speak of God remembering, they are referring specifically to God taking action on behalf of his people in light of his character and promises. And the first time that we read about God remembering is in the story of Noah, Genesis chapter 8, where he says, God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. That's after a year of rain and floating on the waters over the earth. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. He came to their rescue. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, as God's people are languishing in slavery for 400 years in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his people and sent Moses to deliver them. And then you come to the, the New Testament, and Mary sings the Magnificat, and you remember what she sings? She praises God who remembered his mercy promised to Abraham. And then at the end of Jesus' life, as he's hanging on the cross, the penitent thief next to him, what does he say to Jesus? Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. See, not once are they saying, I'm worried you're going to forget. I'm worried that you might not recognize me. No, they're saying, God, remember your promises. Act in line with your character. Deliver your people. We need you. And it's the last thing Nehemiah writes in his memoir. And then 400 years of silence. And God's people, one can imagine, read this story again and again over the years. And it ends with this. Remember us, Lord. Remember us. Act on our behalf. Deliver us. Act in a manner consistent with your character and your promise. God, please, please rescue us. Now, these are the words that rang in the ears of God's people. And so let me ask you this morning, is it really a poor ending to end with chapter 13? Or is it an absolute necessary ending if you recognize what your character 
and what your heart is really like. Now, it's a song we sing pretty often, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And if that's true of your heart this morning, you need Nehemiah chapter 13. Remember me, O Lord. Act on my behalf in line with your character and your promise. Do what only you can do. Now in a moment, we come to the communion table. We come to remember. We come to remember how God did carry out his rescue. We remember the cost that Jesus made to rescue us, to secure the promise of salvation through the shedding of blood. We remember the cost by which he remembers us. We also remember the God who remembers us. One author said, every morning I wake up an atheist all over again till I drink my first cup of coffee and remember Oh yes, but God, he was here waiting for me this morning. See, you and I forget quickly that there is a God in heaven, that our Redeemer lives, that he has risen, ascended, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and praying for us right now. And I forget that every single day. I think it's on me. And I think it's all about my intentions and my doing my best to follow through on them. And Nehemiah says, no. Remember the God who remembers you. Remember the cost by which he remembers. And remember the God who does remember. Who acts on your behalf in line with his character and his promises. Remember a God who takes faltering, stumbling sinners, who loves them unconditionally, who never gives up on them, who comes looking for us again and again to lead us out of hiding, to lead us home to him. That's our God. So we come then to the end of our series in Nehemiah. It has challenged us to remember the relentless and persistent faithfulness of our God that overcomes all our weakness and all our failings. And it has challenged us to pray boldly with the expectation and faith that our God will answer. So let me finish with this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Prayer is, beyond any question, the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. Amen. Would you join me briefly for a prayer? Father, we ask that we would indeed as a church Remember that you are a faithful God who has seen us through many troublesome days. But today, this day, you are as faithful now as you were yesterday and you promise to be as faithful tomorrow. 
And we pray also, Lord, in our weakness and our brokenness as you brought us to our knees, that we would realize that the place to be is to stay on our knees, to turn our attention to the God of heaven and to seek him daily in prayer. We ask this in your name. Amen.